Welcome, welcome. This is the Enlightenment Show, and I'm your host, Laurie Schoenfeld. This is where chicken soup for the soul meets the artist way with Nancy Drew. Our guest today is Georgie Blaylock, author of An Indiscreet Princess. We're going to be chatting with her today about her new release and a time when she felt most free. Welcome, Georgie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. What is something that's been enjoyable for you so far this week? Oh, wow. This week. I've been doing a lot of research on a new proposal, and I finally finished like the first chapter. And so now I'm digging really into the synopsis and it's, this one's a little bit different for me. So there's a little more intrigue in the book. And so it's been fun to start plotting that. And then I went to breakfast with a friend yesterday who's a writer and we chatted about it and stuff. So that's, that's always a lot of fun. Um, There is something magical about food and brainstorming your creative process with a friend. It is because they, Mm -hmm. you know, as writers, we're so close to that source material that sometimes we can't see things or you know, we have big blind spots. And so it's nice when you talk to a friend because sometimes they see things or they have ideas that you would have never thought of, or they say something and it sparks something and it sparks an idea and then suddenly you're off. And it also sometimes just saying it out loud instead of hearing it in your head all week mm-hmm. is enough to kind of spark things. And so it's a great, I highly recommend it. It's a great thing to just bounce it off people. And, you know, sometimes they'll just throw out something where you're like, whoa, that I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. And then the whole story opens up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you share with our listeners and viewers what an indiscreet princess is all about? So an indiscreet princess is about Princess Louise. She was Queen Victoria's fourth daughter and I think her sixth child. And she was a lot different than her siblings. Um, She was an artist, but she liked to do sculpture, which at the time was considered by many to be a very masculine art because it's a very physical art, but she was good at it. And she fought very hard to create a life that wasn't just go marry a foreign prince and you know try and spread influence that way. She was the first royal ever to attend a public school. She attended the National Art Training School and she studied sculpture and art. And she had, for her at the time, a career. So if you go to Kensington Gardens, her sculpture of her mother, Queen Victoria, is there in the gardens. She was able to show in art shows and she was basically able to create a life. and. That was really something considering how controlling Queen Victoria was, especially with all of her nine children. So for Princess Louise to be able to do that, to kind of defy her mother in that way, and at times to get her mother on board with her ideas was really something. Mm -hmm. What kind of research did you do to put those historical pieces within this novel? I do a lot of reading. Um, So my starting off point was Lucinda Hoxley has a really good book on Princess Louise called um, Queen Victoria's Mysterious Daughter. And she she deals with a lot of things that I don't really deal with in the book. Um, but she, one of the things she talks about is Princess Louise had a very long-term uh, love affair with another sculptor, Joseph Edgar Baum. And at the time, he was a very well-known sculptor. He was the sculptor in ordinary to the queen. He has since faded from view because they both lived at a time when there were so many luminaries in the art world, you know, Whistler, um, a lot of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, uh, Singer Sargent, you know, just big names that, you know, some people are going to get forgotten. And unfortunately, he died a little bit young 
And so uh, his legacy did not live on. But at the time, he was very well known. And if you go to the National, to the, it's the National History Museum in London, his sculpture of Charles Darwin is there. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that you can see. And so, so I, I use that book as a starting off point to see, you know, get the basic overview of her life, the who were the, what were the big things that kind of happened in her life, who were the major players. And then from there, I go on and start researching things individually. So she was really close to her brother, Leopold. He was the one that had hemophilia. And so I, I would get a biography of him and read about that. I would read about her friends, anything that was in kind of her orbit. I read about a lot of the artists because that was the other thing. She was friends with so many of these artists. I sort of had to just pick one that to show <laughs> the whole story through. And I chose James McNeil Whistler's, who is um, if you've seen the picture of mother, it's the side profile of an older woman. She's wearing black. She's got the white cap on. It's very well known. But one of the other reasons I chose him is that a lot of his letters, which some of which were to Princess Louise and some of which were to and from Joseph Edgar Bohm are available online. And I believe it's from the University of Birmingham. And so it was fun to be able to go in and see these people who are my fictional characters, but yet at the same time, real people to see their real words. And so, and, and then luckily there was a lot of source material, especially with Queen Victoria. She, all her, most of her journals and letters are available to look at, which was both good and bad because surprisingly, I mean, you know, when you're queen and you've got nine kids, you know, when you start getting down to kid number six, you're not really mentioning them as much in your letters and journals. So in that respect, there wasn't as much as I thought there would be, but there was a lot of good stuff still. And so it was a lot of fun to read the journals and letters and biographies. And then I also have a, uh, the British newspaper archive um, subscription. And this is in an era when the press was as intrusive into their lives as it is into the royal family's lives today. We don't think of that usually. We usually think that all started with Princess Diana, but it actually goes back much farther. And so it was neat to be able to go in and look at stories because some of the artwork that Princess Louise displayed, you can do Google image searches and you can find it. And some you can't. There were a couple pieces that were mentioned as being shown in galleries um, in, in different um showings that I never was able to find an image for, but they did exist because they get mentioned. And so it, it's a lot of that kind of stuff for research, but I love it. You can't write these and not love research. <laughs> mm -hmm. What are, if you had to really target it down to a few main things, what are the things you enjoy most about looking into the events of history? I think one of the things I enjoy most is when I'm surprised that something that feels very modern shows up in history. Mm. So like I was saying about the press is that everybody thinks the intrusive press started kind of with Princess Diana and it didn't. One of the things that Princess Louise had to do when navigating her relationship with Joseph Bohm was keep it out of the press. And that was a hard thing to do, especially because her brother, Bertie, he had all so many scandals going on during her lifetime that there was a very big interest in the royal family and what they were doing. And because he had so many scandals, it meant some of the other siblings, especially the women, had to be kind of above that. And meanwhile, they're running around doing all these things that we think about as very modern. And, and they're not. And so I always enjoy finding that. And, and one of the things that's fun about that, and at the same time can be difficult, is that there are certain things you read about and you think, if I put this in the book, 
nobody's going to believe. They're going to think I made it up or they're going to think it's too modern. And so sometimes you do have to pick and choose to meet reader expectations about a certain era that, okay, if I put this in there, yes, it's true to the time period, but because it feels so modern, it's, it's not real. They're going to think it's not real. Yeah. Yep. You are an enthusiast of royalty. When did that begin? That began a long time ago. Um, In junior high, I was really interested in the ancient world. So ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. And, you know, I'd go to the library and at some point, I don't necessarily remember when I wandered into the British history section and I started reading that and I just became fascinated with it. And it's something I've always had a fascination with and I've always enjoyed. And I think maybe part of that is because there's a fairy tale aspect to it. Like we all know it's, you know, warts and all, we all know it isn't a dream. Okay. And it never was, but I think because there is that fairy tale aspect, Ooh, you got a big castle and a title and all this sort of stuff that that's kind of fun. And then it's at the same time fun to see the realities of it, that it was, you know, nasty diseases and wars and, you know, early death. And so it's just interesting to read about that stuff. And especially when you're able, I've been to London a few times and it's nice. It's interesting to be able to see these things and and it's got a a lineage in the way that I live in Southern California. So something here is from the sixties and it's ancient history. Um, (laughs) But you go to England and you're standing on a medieval wall overlooking Roman ruins. That's how far back it goes. Or, you know, you walk into Salisbury Cathedral and you see that copy of the Magna Carta and you know that that's sort of the great, 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 great grandfather of our constitution. So I I think it's a lot of fun for history nuts to be able to dig back that far, especially when you come from an area that the history didn't really go back that far. Mm -hmm. Yes. Louise, I loved her character as, you know, she is a trailblazer got that rebel defiant personality and fire within her. Where did that stem from that you wanted to bring in that essence of the rebelness? What did that look like during that time era? What was a rebel? For her, it was numerous things. It was, I think, I think some of her wanting to be a rebel comes from being an artist Hmm. and wanting that, that, ability to express herself through her art, to have that freedom to create, to achieve and strive. And because she was a royal princess, that was not expected of her. If she'd have been a prince, nobody would have thought twice about it. Or she would have had a career in the Navy, like one of her older brothers did. There were just options. As a princess, there were not those options. And so for her to be able to do that, she had no choice but to struggle. And one of the things that you see in real life and in the book, her older sister, Helena, Princess Helena Lenchen, did not have that spirit. And because of that, Queen Victoria, who was a force herself, mm-hmm. so much so that she would just roll over everybody, um, rolls over the older sister. She does not have the same strength of will and the same ability to stand up to Queen Victoria. And without that ability, Queen Victoria then dictates her life because that, that was one of the other things in the book um, is there. One of the reasons I decided to put in all the quotes from Queen Victoria's journals and letters is I wanted people to see that that's how she really was. Cause I think there's this view of Queen Victoria that she's, you know, Judy Dench and she's kind of this lovable grandmother figure. And the reality is she became queen when she was 18. 
she had to come out from under the influence of her mother to reign on her own. You've also got years and years and years. I mean, she's queen. Who tells a queen no? But that's really hard. And the only person that could do it was her husband, the prince consort. Well, as soon as he dies, now there's nobody to tell her no. So you have this really strong personality who's also queen and nobody to tell her no. And so if you were not a strong personality in that family, you just were run over. And, and then for Louise, I think that was something that she was born with because you do see that difference between her and some of her siblings, that some of the siblings were born with it and some weren't. Hmm. And she was born with that streak and, and she probably got it from her mother. And, and so the two of them butt heads in that way. And that I think they were very similar in that respect, that they were so similar in their stubbornness and their desire to mold the world to the way they wanted it, that they kind of clashed. But then in the book I have, you know, the queen be able to see her daughter's point of view and the daughter be able to see her mother's point of view. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's something that gets lost too, is that it's difficult to understand the kind of life that Queen Victoria had and how it made her who she is. Yes. Louise wears a necklace, which I really love. There was a very endearing moment because my grandma gave me a pearl necklace before she passed. Mm -hmm. And so that moment really connected to my heart. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. I love to hear that. <laughs> oh, it did. And it was because I actually could visualize when you have Louise wearing the pearl necklace mm -hmm. that her grandma gave her and like just standing in her truth and what she's expected to do and trying mm -hmm. to fill into that connection. It was very beautiful how you put that together. That was actually a real thing. Uh, because what happened is Prince Albert, his the necklace is from his mother. So her father, Prince Albert, it's it was his mother. And what happened is he was very close to his mother and his mother did sort of this, well, I wouldn't say she was a rebel too, but she was a rebel at a time when being a rebel meant you were thrown out of your kids' lives and you were thrown out of the court and that was the end of it. And so what happened is, is she followed her heart. She, you know, she'd had an arranged marriage. She had her two sons and then she, she ran off with a gentleman and Prince Albert was never allowed to see her again. And so that was something that it, when you read all the biographies, it really affected him. And so he named his, he named Louise after his mother. He gave her the pearl necklace. So I think there was something that he saw in her that, you know, his connection to her was maybe a sense of that rebelliousness, but they also shared that love of art. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons she was allowed to do the sculpture is it was something that before his death, he had encouraged and he had encouraged it heavily. And so after he died, anything that he had sort of dictated that was something he thought was a good idea or a plan he had for his children, Queen Victoria would stick to that. And so that is one of the reasons that Princess Louise was able to become an artist is that she was able to say, well, you know, my father wanted me to do this. And it was an argument that Queen Victoria, despite wanting to have her way, could not fully argue against. Mm-hmm. Do you, Georgie, have an object or an item that you treasure that's been passed down through your own bloodline? Um, I have a medallion from my grandmother. And she used to wear it all the time. And so, you know, it, it, it's a Saint, it's Saint Jude Thaddeus medallion. And I actually had to go look it up. And he's the patron saint of lost causes. And I don't know why she wore it. I have a few, sus I suspect. And so on those days when things are difficult... I'll pull that out. Mm -hmm. 
Do you feel that connection, Georgie, when there's that history with your grandma of even just that question that you just asked of like, I don't know why she wore that, but mm -hmm. that curiosity and that history of holding it and trying to understand, do you feel that connection with her? I do. And I think that's one of the reasons I like history stuff so much is because you see that connection between the past and the present. And then you get to see the personal side of it because so often history is presented in these big sweeping things, you know, mm -hmm. this war happened and this event happened. And then when you get down to the personal and all the stories and it gives you that connection to the past so that you, um, you stop seeing it just as this thing and you see it as real people, real struggles, real issues and problems that you can relate to as a person. And then you also see how they dealt with it and you can learn from that. And so that's one of the things I love about these personal things. Like you said, the pearls or the thing for my grandmother is it's that connection that means something more than just the big overarching sweeps of history, but the, the real and the personal and the, and the idea that I'm not the first person to have this problem. I'm not the first person to face this. How did that person deal with it? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of great inspiration to draw from that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree with that. When was the time that you felt free and lived your life to the fullest? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I want to say every day, but uh, that's, <laughs> nobody believes <believe> that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I feel right now, I feel very blessed to be able to do the writing and to be able to, because this is my full-time job. And to be able to do that, because there were many years where it was not my full-time job. And, you know, I had to juggle a lot of stuff in order to write. So, uh, you know, way back in the day, I was, I, wrote, I worked full-time, but I had a compressed work week. So I'd work on, I'd have Wednesdays off, I'd work that day. So to be able to sit down every single day and be able to, to work this way. And let's, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Not every day is spectacular. Some days cleaning my house is far more interesting than working on that chapter that just won't come together. I mean, you know, so it's not all sunshine and rainbows every day, but I have that freedom now to do that and to do this work and to spend these hours researching and to be able to find all these interesting stories and, and, you know, write them down or, and think, okay, I'm going to do that. This one, this one, this time, but maybe next time I'll do this one. And so I would have to say now, that's not to say I haven't had fun in the past, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you mentioned Georgie, that not every day is sunshines and rainbows because, you know, there are struggles being a creative when you're doing a mundane task, like cleaning the house or yard work or going on a walk, does that actually help? you come back and process some of those pieces that you feel stuck on? Yes. Cause sometimes it's, you have to put some space between you and the story because you're so into it. You're so in depth with it. It's just, you can't, you know, can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you step away, you know, depending on your deadline and what time allows, if you can step away for an hour, two hours, a couple days, a couple weeks, and then come back to it with fresh eyes. That's a lot of times when, suddenly whatever the problem you're having is you either see the problem or you think of the answer to the problem 
But when you're in the middle of it and you're trying to force it and it's just not happening, it just doesn't work. And, you know, every once in a while, you don't have a choice but to do that, given, you know, your timing and your deadlines. But most of the time, the ability to step away and then come back to it fresh. And it, and it goes back to, the you know, like a lot of times I'll go to breakfast or something with friends of mine who are writers and just bounce the ideas off of them. Because, again, it's getting that fresh perspective. Someone who's not as close to it as you are, who can see the problems, who can come up with new solutions. Because that, that can be a challenge sometimes, too, is that you you write out the story in the synopsis form and you think this is the way it's going and this is the way it's supposed to go. And then you get into the story and suddenly it wanders off this way and you're like, <laughs> you know, and you keep trying to pull it back and it doesn't. And so sometimes you have to follow it that way or you're like, well, I know you want to go this way, but what if we just kind of veered a little bit this way? And that's where either taking time or talking with someone can definitely help you, especially when things don't go quite the way you think they're going to go. We're going to come right on back here in just a minute with Georgie. Where is the place in your life? Welcome back, Georgie. <laughs> um, as we're getting set back up, think about those who are joining us live and will be on the replay as well. Where is the place in your life that you are living your life to the fullest and feeling most free. Glad to have you back, Georgie. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take it to the inner child question segment. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. First question. If you could create any statue, what would it be and why? Oh, wow. Oh, my. <laughs> ah! Um, you know, I used to love ancient Egypt and I still do. I still, I read a lot. I still read a lot about it. There's a great podcast I listen to. And, and that is a, um, a piece of history that we know mostly because of the monuments and the, uh, the statues that they have left. Cause you know, that it's enduring stone is enduring in a way that, you know, wood and whatnot isn't. And so if I think if I had to create something like that, I think it would be a statue of um, maybe like a scarab beetle because it mm. represents uh, Ra and it's the, the rising or Kepra, the rising sun and that sense of renewal and that mm. sense of being born again. And that idea that, you know, because that's kind of what books are in a lot of ways, like writing a book is every time you start one, it's it's a new beginning. It's a new story. It's in a way, an odd way. It's a new day. And that is what Kepra, the rising sun was. And it was represented by the scarab beetle. So I think I would do that. I love that. <laughs> yes. I can visualize that too, like the rise of the new day. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Second question. As you were growing up, who were a few women trailblazers that you were in, really inspired with? Oh, wow. Well, when I first became interested in British history, Queen Elizabeth I was mm. somebody that I, I read a lot about. And so I would say her because uh, she wasn't the first queen of England but she was one of the, you know, the grandest 
and and had to face some very big challenges in regards to you know when you, when you follow you know Queen Mary and Henry VIII, <laughs> you get handed a lot of baggage, and and then you know to have this era that just spans so many things and so many large events. That was something I was very fascinated with. So I think she was definitely, definitely one. And then mm -hmm. this is kind of a silly one. Well, it's not silly, but uh, <laughs> the reasoning behind it's okay. I remember. Okay. So I, I had the same birthday as Anne Frank. And yeah. so, and when I first read her diary, roughly the same age, she wrote it. It's, you know, the meaning and the way it kind of, again, like I was talking about earlier, that something from the past touches you in that personal way. And then you see this as a real person and not just this person from the past. And so I kind of always felt like because we shared the same birthday, that it made her a little more real to me, mm -hmm. even, and which on top of the diary and reading it at that age, when it's the same kind of going, dealing with some of the same, not obviously not the same stuff, but some of like, you know, your body and stuff like that is mm -hmm. something that always kind of stayed with me. I love that a lot. I don't think it's silly at all. Cause I remember as a kid, when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 age, I loved the swings and I'd mm -hmm. put my hands out on the swings to feel like I was flying. And yes. for whatever reason, connecting to Amelia Earhart of like, mm -hmm. I wonder if this is how it feels for her yes. to like be up in the air. You know, yeah. Well, especially to us, flying is you know, we don't think anything of it. But at the mm -hmm. time, how revolutionary was that? Yes. And mm -hmm. you know, to us, it seems like nothing. But to them, back then, it was shocking. It'd be like us going to space. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love that you share the same birthday with Anne Frank. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fun little piece for yeah, sure. Yeah, that was. <laughs> Third question. What is the oddest food combo that you've liked and tried or you've just tried? The oddest food combo. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. So I used to write a lot of Regency romances. And um, you would have to discuss food. And rabbit is something that comes up a lot in historical <laughs> dishes. And it's not something you pop down to the grocery store and buy. And I, my husband and I were on a cruise and rabbit was on the menu. And so I ate it because I was like, well, now I'm curious. Now we're going to see <laughs> what this is like. It tastes like chicken. Um, so I, I think that might be the strangest because it's not, I don't think I would have ordered it. I would never order it again. And I would have never ordered it before, but it was sort of that opportunity to like, well, I write about it. I ought to see what it tastes like. Yes. So did you like it? I didn't it was hate enjoyable? it. I didn't hate it. <laughs> Tasted like chicken. You know, I just, uh, <laughs> you know, it was sort of innocuous. It was, I didn't like totally <laughs> detest it, but I didn't love it either. Like it was food. It was edible. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, yeah. <laughs> It was there. <laughs> Before we end today, Georgie, what is a bit of advice that you can share with our listeners and viewers on living a creatively abundant life? I would say that go ahead and do it. I think a lot of people get hung up because they're afraid. If I write, it's going to be bad. Yep. 
it will be. And, or I don't know how to do it. Sorry, my dog has decided to bark. Um, is it, is, I think fear holds a lot of people back. And I get that. I have those moments too, even now. But just do it. Just sit down and write. Just sit down and do that painting. Just sit down. Because especially with writing, you cannot edit a blank page. You, you have to have something there. And you learn a lot by doing. And yes, it will be awful. And yes, it will be horrible. But someday it will also be wonderful. But you have to start. You have to start somewhere and you have to begin. And then you have to keep going. And there, trust me, there are many setbacks. A friend of mine and I used to joke, like, you know, there were a lot easier ways to make a living. And, <laughs> and, and there will be a lot of setbacks. But just keep going. And also just keep your goals manageable. You know, don't sit down and say, I'm going to be a best-selling author. Yes, okay, that's a great goal to have. But sit down and say, what can I do today? I can write a page. What can I do the next day? Well, I can write another one. Or I can edit the one I had yesterday. What can I do the day after? It's like every day, just that little goal. But keep doing something and keep moving forward. And eventually, it all adds up. And then eventually, you know, you're, you're that much closer to your goal. Georgie, I love your advice. And Thank I you. love that your dog, it was like, as you were like having this pep talk, your dog was like barking, yes, you can. Like that's yes. <laughs> He's trying to tear up the UPS man. So, and he's about 16 pounds. So, you know. <laughs> yep. This is his tangible goal right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Absolutely. Where can we find you if you have any questions about your book or what you're doing for upcoming projects? So my website is georgieblaylock.com. You can reach me through that. I also have uh, pages on there. So if you want to kind of get a look at the world of Princess Louise, uh, I have pictures of Joseph Edgar Bohm and her uh, sculpture and some of her siblings on there as well. So you can get a taste of the world that I'm talking about. I'm also on Instagram at Georgie Blaylock and same with Facebook. It's Georgie Blaylock. Thank you. Thank you. And for all of us who are watching and will be watching in the replay, thank you so much for joining us. Remember as you go about your week to find the things that are working for you. You are the creator of your own story. What steps are you going to take next? Have a beautiful rest of your day and we'll see you right here at 12 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time with Randall Silvis on Saturday. Thank you. Thank you so much, Georgie. Thank you. And thank you for everybody who was watching today.